in 2 Kings 17, we finally come to the clearest, simplest, most straightforward place of explanation for what God is doing and why. So I've told you a number of times we have to remember what the book of Kings, 1st and 2nd Kings together is one book. What we've, we have studied what it was written for. And again, largely it is an explanation to the people in exile. How did we get here? What is going on? Are we not God's people? Have we not received His promises? Why are we cast out of the land? Why are we exiled. That is the emphasis of these first 23 verses of 2 Kings 17. And in the first six verses, what we have is an explanation of what happened. Just a short summary, and here is where we are. Here is what happened at the end. And what was it that happened? Well, God finally judged His people, the people of Israel. While Hosea was king. And he wasn't even that bad of a king compared to other other kings of Israel. But remember, from my sermon a couple weeks ago, We don't compare ourselves to other people, do we? We don't compare ourselves to other people. We compare ourselves to what God requires of us. And Hosea was not doing what the Lord required of him. And so, the Bible is clear. He was a wicked king. But it even even says, you know, He wasn't as bad as the other kings. Nevertheless, God's judgment came while Hosea was king. Are we following the Lord? That's the question. Not, are we as bad as somebody else out there? Are we as as given over to idolatry as that person? Are we as unconcerned about truth as that church? No, none of these things matter. They don't matter in Hosea's day. They don't matter in our day. Now, if Hosea had repented, what might have happened differently in Israel in the whole course of history? We don't know. He didn't, right? But it could have changed the the course of world history had Hosea simply humbled himself and repented and turned the people of Israel away from the worship of the idols that Jeroboam had begun that nation's separation from Judah with, right? He started with creating golden calves for them to worship. And it ended with that being an ongoing practice. Hosea doesn't repent. 
the result of generations, generations of wicked kings and of wicked people in Israel is ultimately that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came and fought Hosea and Israel and made Hosea a vassal king. Now, to be a vassal king means that you're not in charge anymore. If you were king, you would want to be in charge, right? If you were king, you would want to be in charge. That's kind of the point. There's, there's, a, there's an old song, it's good to be king and have your own way. That's the point in our minds, right? Now, I want you to keep that in mind because Hosea thinks the same way you and I think about being king. What is even the point if I have to constantly pay my money that I'm supposed to be collecting for myself to some other king? What is even the point if I have to get permission to do things like go to war? It's my army. Now, this is what it's like to be a vassal king. It's bad. It's bad news. It's not fun. You don't get to be boss anymore. And yet, and yet, it can get worse. And this is what Hosea finds out. It can get worse. You can be what's known as not king. You can be in jail. That's worse, isn't it? So it's tempting when we don't have our own way to think, come on, this is terrible. But ask yourself this question, could it be worse? And the answer is generally, yes, it could be lots worse. In fact, what I am about to do because I'm irritated that I'm not getting my own way, might well make it worse. Right? Have you kids ever been irritated that somebody else took your spot? I was sitting there. Have you, have you ever been irritated that somebody took what you were playing with? right out of your hands? I was playing with that. You ever had that happen? No, you're the one who does it, aren't you? (laughs) His mother testifies. (laughs) Have you ever been frustrated that somebody, dad, mom, is just in your way? This child will not move. Do they not realize that I am the boss? That I have important things to do, places to go, people to see. I've got to answer the phone. Get out of my way. 
All of these things are remarkably similar in very little ways to what Hosea feels being a vassal king. I want my way. When somebody takes away what you have, what you're playing with, what you want, what you are about to use, when they're in your way, what you're really irritated about the fact is you're not king. You can't just have your way. Always. Whenever you want. In fact, this is precisely what Jezebel faults Ahab for failing to realize. You're king, dude. Just have your own way. Just have your own way. Are you king or not? Okay, so now realize I'm using Ahab and Jezebel because they're the worst. Right? And so when we have little images of Ahab and Jezebel running around in us, acting like them, thinking, I should be able to get, I should be able to have, I should be able to do what I want when I want. That's the way Hosea felt. And so he tried it. There's a lot of ways of trying to get what you want, right? One of the ways is by being a bully. Friend, a sibling, brother or sister, or a frenemy. Take what you were playing with. That's easy enough to solve. Take it back! Right? Or... Punch them, then take it back. But that's typically the, what the other person does when they, once you've yanked it back, then there's the tug of war, finally the striking, and then things are better because you finally get what you want, right? That's how it always ends. You finally got what you wanted, and, and now everything's better. Is that how it ends for you kids? No, how does it end? Everyone gets spanked. <laughs> and it's worse, isn't it? It's worse than not having what you wanted. It can always get worse. So that's what happens with Hosea. He thinks, I don't want to be vassal king. I want to be real king. I'm going to figure out a way to get what I want. I'm going to, I'm going to try to conspire against Mr. Real King of Assyria. And after all, he's an enemy of God's people. Certainly I'm justified in fighting against him, right? Who is this Shalmaneser anyway? So he thinks that he can make it better, but it goes very poorly for him. Kind of like when we fight to get our own way. Remember I said there's lots of ways of trying to get your own way and that only one of them was the direct fighting way? He does not try the bully way because he's not strong enough to just punch Shalmaneser. Right? He's not strong enough. to. So he tries the sneaky way to get his way. Some of you are more familiar with the sneaky way. You don't yank the toy back. 
What do you do? Maybe there's some tattling involved. Maybe there's some uh, misdirection. Maybe there's some uh, going and being vindictive against your sibling by doing something to their things in their room. Have any of you ever been tempted to do that? To dump out their clothes so they have work to do? Or to just go find something that you know they were supposed to do? Mom, this was never completed. I don't know who was supposed to do that, but... Oh, look! The computer's open. I can use it again. Oh, look! They've been sent away from what I wanted. Now I can have it. You see, there's lots of ways of us seeking to be king, aren't there? And what what Hosea does is he goes to another king and he's like, hey, let's gang up. So this this is is the sneaky other way, right? But Shalmaneser finds out about his plan and he comes and he spends three years besieging Samaria. It's three painful years. An enemy surrounding your city. Imagine living in Samaria for three years. After Hosea, you're like, yeah, I didn't like being in a vassal kingdom, but this is worse. This is definitely worse. So who's, who's responsible? Hosea is responsible, right? The Bible just says he did this. But why did he do it? Well, I wouldn't be at all surprised if it was because the people were complaining. Come on, man. Do something. We're sick of paying these taxes. Can't you figure out a way out of this? You're king. Do something. So he tries. And finally, the end result is not just that the people are in a vassal kingdom under Assyria, but that their kingdom is abolished. Done away with. The capital city is finally taken and Shalmaneser exiles everybody. They've gone from the frying pan, right, into the fire. Straight into the fire. Now, I thought about trying, I, I, I tried to think of examples of this metaphor, right? Out of the frying pan, into the fire. And I'm sure there are a lot of good examples in history of uh, people that have gone out of the frying pan into the fire. But really, this passage illustrates it better than any other example that I could think of. So instead of using some other comparison, I just want to direct your attention back to this example. Here we have an example of somebody who has gone from the frying pan straight into the fire. And so he ends up imprisoned with no people anymore. It's not just that he's king, but now he's in prison and his people are without him. No, the people are gone. The kingdom is gone. It is just part of Assyria now. It's not a vassal kingdom in Assyria. It's gone. There is no more Israel. This is the worst. It doesn't get worse than this. And so, we've concluded 
the first six verses, what happened? The worst. But why? Why did it happen? Well, the rest of our passage, verses 7 through 23, is why it happened. And the story backs way, 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 way up. Generations ago, not just the generations and generations of kings that have been in Israel, although it does go straight back to the beginning, that first king, Jeroboam, right? But no, much, much earlier than that, back before the United Kingdom, back before the time of the judges, back before they had the land in the first place, back to Egypt when they were in another land entirely. That's where the story backs up to. And why Egypt? Because that is where God delivered His people. Out of the hands of Pharaoh into the promised land ultimately, right? He gave them what He promised. If we were to step back even further, what He promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? Which is implicit in their name, the Israelites, because Jacob was renamed Israel by the Lord Himself, and so they are the sons of Israel. The sons of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, and God delivered them out of their slavery, and He gave them the land that He had promised to Israel, their father. This is where everything begins. Now, prior to that, you have the promise. And if we fast forward to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we read about how Abraham and the fathers, before they were ever given the land, believed the promise that God had given them, that they would have the land later, right? And Hebrews actually makes makes it explicit that they realized that it wasn't just this earthly land. It wasn't about houses and cars and clothes and so forth here in this life. They realized that it was a heavenly city that they were looking for. So, so I'm, I'm fast-forwarding way far into Hebrews because I want you to realize This promise had been delivered, right? And it included this earthly land, this earthly kingdom. But it also, and those men knew it, included much more than that. The presence of the Lord. God was promising that He would be a God to them and that they would be His people, right? That was the beauty of the promise. Yeah, the beauty included this glorious land flowing with milk and honey, but it was that he would be there present among them that made it a wonderful land, that made it a beautiful promise. Okay, so I've backed way up in the story and I fast-forwarded to it being explained in the New Testament, but now come back and think about what happens. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob don't see the promise fulfilled, right? The people go into slavery. God delivers them. That's why the story, as it backs up, that's why that's where it starts. 
they know what was going on in Egypt. They were slaves. So, he yanks them out of Pharaoh's hand, puts them in the promised land, right? And you'd think, wouldn't you, that they would be grateful. You'd hope that they would be grateful. You'd certainly expect that they would listen to him having seen his power demonstrated. But what does our passage say they did instead? They chose to worship other gods, doing precisely what he warned them against doing. When you go into the land, Moses, before they leave, right? Before he's taken from them, he warns them. Joshua, as he leads them in, he warns them. Look, you're going to receive bounty. You're going to have plenty. And you're going to have the temptation to turn away from the Lord. To have your hearts turned from Him. And to love the things of this world. Don't forget God. Don't turn to the idols of the land. Don't worship other gods. And why is Joshua warning them about this? Why does Moses warn them about this? Because they see it. They know the people. They know the temptation. They see what the temptations are going to be. And they love the people. They're giving their life to leading a fractious complaining group of people. Why? Why does Moses give his life to this work? Why does Joshua take up that mantle? It's because they love God, right? It's also because they love the people. It's their people. Sometimes I get very irritated with my children when they're fighting with each other. Why do I get irritated? Well, I don't like it. I want things to be peaceful, quiet. I want there to be love, right? Moses sometimes got very irritated with the people, didn't he? But, but think about, if you're Moses, if you're Joshua, you're trying to lead this Crazy, complaining, never believing group of people. And you know God's faithfulness and you know how unfaithful they are. You're thinking, what do I want to see? I want to see them generation after generation after generation following after the Lord. That's what I want to see happen. I don't want to see them fighting. I don't want to see them bickering. I don't want to see them killing each other. I don't want to see them blessing the way they're receiving his blessing right now. And so they warn the people. They call them to faithful obedience to the Lord, to seeking after him. 
and the ingratitude of the people as we look in this passage and see it described is truly astonishing. It just starts out in verse 7. The sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods. What an absurd thing to do when he has delivered them from the gods of Egypt. Through all of those miracles, each one demonstrating his power over one of the pantheon of the gods of the Egyptians, right? They have no power. There is nothing to fear there. What of the people of the land? Well, they just conquered them. They've got... God has no lack of power to conquer enemies, to deliver his children, but they feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. Now, you'll see here, back and forth, a co-blaming, if you will, of the leaders and of the people. The leaders and the people. The kings lead them into sin. The people follow in the footsteps of the king, the heirs that the kings introduce, and back and forth. And so you're seeing that here. It's first talking about the people, then it's talking about the kings, then it's saying that they did what the kings said to do. Sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Or there's a strange question of interpretation here and uh, what it, it, it actually has to do with words being spoken. It seems as though what this means is not just that they did things secretly as compared to the next verse, or the next sentence, which says, Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns. So, there's the public false worship that they've given themselves over to on the high places. And then there's the private secret sin that they've given themselves to. Saying things in their hearts. So, it flows from what they say in their hearts to the outward expression. The, the, the things against the Lord in their hearts, secretly, to a public expression of their wickedness through idolatry on the high places. And so in verses 7 through 12, what's described is how they were delivered, and how they responded. False worship of false gods, setting up asherim, burning incense, doing evil things to provoke the Lord, serving idols, and, and concerning which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. From the very beginning, before they went into the land, God warned them about this very thing. Okay, so that's the first part. God has delivered them. They have responded not with gratitude, but with ingratitude. They have responded not with loyalty, but with despicable disloyalty. Then in verses 13 through 17, we, we read starting in verse 13, Yet, 
yet, and, and that's one of those important words, right, that, that says, oh, okay, wait, this is, this is bringing a, a but, this is bringing a contrast, there's this, okay, something's happening here that's important. In spite of what we just read, what? What does it say? It goes back to the Lord again. It goes back to the Lord and says, yet the Lord, how does the Lord respond? The Lord responds with great mercy, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. So, God didn't respond, and we've, we've studied this, right? God didn't respond the way that you and I would respond with, okay, that's it. I've had it. I brought you out of Egypt. I warned you this was going to be a temptation. The first thing you do is you give yourself over to the sins of the people that I just kicked out of this land for these very same sins. You're done. No. What does it say? Yet, instead of responding that way, he warned them. How? With prophet after prophet after prophet after seer after prophet. Come on, come back. Listen, obey, walk in the right way. Do it, come on, come on. Prophet after prophet after prophet. Warning after warning after warning. This is God's response. He warns the people, but what do they do? They continue even further into wickedness. And so it gets specific in the furthering of their wickedness. It says, verse uh, 15 or, or 14, they, however, they did not listen. All those warnings, however, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers. So generation after generation, we get the same thing, them not listening. And then what? They rejected his statutes. This is what he warned them about, to follow in those. They rejected his statutes and his covenant. Wait a minute. They rejected his covenant? This was his promise that he would be a God to them and to their children after them, that he would protect them and that they would be his people. So this is the first inkling that we get, not just of them wanting also to have these other gods, but actually we're rejecting God. And this is always what idolatry leads to. We reject God himself. We reject his covenant in the end. We think we can kind of have both, but no. They reject his covenant. They begin to worship Asherah, the, all the hosts of heaven serve Baal. They even make two calves to worship. And then verse 17, in the extremity, and we've seen this in the, in the last chapter, right? They made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire. They sacrificed their own children, thinking that this would get them 
what they wanted, which is what our land has given itself to for now 50 years and counting. Sacrificing our children to Moloch so that we can have the wealth that we want. So that we can have the fertility that we want. And practicing divination and enchantments and selling themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Provoking him. So this is the same selling himself to do evil that we saw of Ahab. You remember, he sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. This is their response to his merciful warning. And so it says the Lord was very angry. Verse 18. With Israel. Finally. After hundreds of years, we finally get to the end of his patience and he is very angry. And he removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. So this is the explanation of what happened. The Lord saved. They didn't care. The Lord warned. They went further into rebellion. The Lord judged. God judged his people. And what was the judgment? In verses 18 through 23, we read it three times. They were removed from his presence. And this is precisely what he said would happen if they rejected his covenant by worshiping these false gods. The covenant would be broken. That would be the end of their being his people. And yet, what a weird judgment. They've rejected the covenant. Isn't this just what they wanted? They've rejected God. And so, who cares if he rejected them? They've broken the covenant. They've rejected the covenant. So who cares if God says that's the end of the covenant? Who cares if he says, you're removed from my presence? They don't want to be in his presence. They've chosen the presence of idols. And this is one of those, those unique things where we see God giving us, mankind, over to what we have chosen. Giving us over to our sin and the consequences of it. And it's like, no, we don't want it. We don't like it, actually. We, we, we've run after it. With all of our hearts. And then we get it. And we're like, eh, I don't like it. And God says, too bad. This is what you chose. This is what you have run after. Now sometimes, you, you may have done this, you you. You see the food in front of you. It looks delicious. It smells delicious. It's a wonderful feast. And you put too much food on your plate. Anybody ever done that? I've done that. Too much. And after a while, it begins to taste not quite as good. You've eaten too much. And you don't want to finish it, right? Okay. Now imagine, instead of it being wonderful food, it's a feast. You know, some kids make the mistake of picking up dog turds. 
and bringing them towards their mouth. Now, this is what the people of Israel are doing. They're running after dog turds. Like, no, no, this is what I want. No, no, I'm putting them on my plate. This is what I'm going to eat. I know you've got a feast over here for me, but, but look, you see my treasure? I'm going to eat it. And God says, fine, eat it. All of it. You are going to eat all of it. And that's his judgment. Okay, you are getting what you want. The covenant is done. You've rejected me. You've cast me out of your presence. Fine. You are out of my presence. Three times removed from his presence. This is what they chose. And so who cares? Well, they care. Right? The moment they see the actual consequences. Oh, God has been merciful to us all this time. His hand of blessing has been on us. He has protected us. He's kept us in the land in spite of our sin. He sent us prophets in spite of our sin, in spite of our rejection, in spite of us killing the prophets. And now he's finally withdrawn his hand and I didn't see what was coming. There's no more Israel. There's no more Israel from this point on, you guys. It's done. From here, they're gone. That's what happens when God removes himself from their presence and removes them from his presence. This is what it is to be cast out of his presence. To be taken to Assyria and spread around and mixed in and ground into the nation so that you are them now. You're not God's people. You're just part of Assyria. And this is what each of us is faced with. We also have been given a warning. Listen to Hebrews 12.25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. This is the warning of the prophets, right? They didn't escape. They were turned over to Assyria. Much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. This is Jesus, our Lord. God sent, remember the, remember the parable? He sends servants to collect his produce from the vineyard, right? And they injure some and kill others of those servants. And finally he says, I'll send my son, the master, the owner of the vineyard. I'll send my son. And what will happen if they reject him? What will happen if they kill him? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. If that's what happened to Israel, they were brought to a wretched end. How much more those who reject his son? That's, what he, that's how Hebrews interprets this whole chapter and really much of the Old Testament for us. 
that we have been given that much more of a warning. We've been given that much more of a blessing. We've been given that much more of the promise. And so to reject it is that much more His judgment on us. And so, as we read Kings and we read what happened and we read why, so what for us? The answer is simple. Walk in His way. Be His people. That's it. Don't reject His covenant. Embrace it. It is a true blessing to all of us. It is the land flowing with milk and honey. The covenant promise is beautiful to us. Is there anything better we could have? There's nothing better we could have. I know you are going to be tempted the same way that I am tempted to think, oh no, there's this thing I need. Oh no, there's this thing I want. Oh no, there's this God that I can serve. There's this thing I can run after. And pretty soon, we've forgotten His covenant. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. So do not turn away from him. I beg you. You don't want to be not a people. You don't want to be the rejected of God people. You don't want to be those who had the covenant and rejected it and are no more. You want to be God's people. And there is no greater gift that he can offer than to be called by his name, his people, according to his covenant.